Hey guys, welcome to the podcast Investorpreneur, where investors meet entrepreneur. Here we talk about everything investing, everything entrepreneurism, everything about making money for the future. Today we talk about startups and how to do it with no money. Now, is it really possible? What resources are required and how do you about going to do this? My name is Peter Leung and I'm a global real estate investor. I'm a private equity business angel investor as well. You've seen me all around with videos or on podcasts working with serial entrepreneurs. And I'm glad that I'm able to have this podcast and be your host, sharing different experiences from people all around the world where we can share their wisdom, their ability, how they build businesses, how they invest, and how they make things happen. Today, I have a very special guest. He's got a global perspective. He's seen the world. He's done a lot of traveling and has similar values as I, especially with young children as well. My guest here today is Charles Batana. He is the CEO of joblabs.io out of Hong Kong. And he's one of those guys who has really made it happen. He's in the digital recruitment exchange space where he's worked with recruitment from specialty of the finance industry. He's also won the best startup of 2021 for the HR Tech Award. Charles, welcome to the Investorpreneur. Thank you for having me, Peter. I hope I live up to your plug there. That was very impressive. Dude, you are awesome. You really go make it happen. We've had a coffee, we've chatted, and you just got so much experience and so much wisdom. And I'm glad to have you here today to share some of that wisdom, how you've been able to do it, what prompted you to do what you do. I'm really looking forward to this, man. Absolutely. I hope I live up to it. I'm not sure if I have much wisdom for you, Peter, but I'll try. I'll definitely try. You absolutely do. So let's start off with this. For those who don't know that much about you, we have a lot of people from Canada, US, UK, Singapore, as well as parts of Australia, New Zealand, listening to this podcast. So tell us a little bit, Charles, about what you're doing. You've had a lot of success in the HR recruitment space, right? Why did you start Job Lab? What is that all about? And what problem is that really solving? Sure. So we started Jobs Lab as a collective between tech developers, machine learning experts, and people who really like maths. And when you really think about it, the problem that we were trying to solve was how do we disrupt a very competitive industry like recruitment? And we looked at our peers in the market like eFinancial, JobsDB, even to some degree LinkedIn, realized that they weren't really augmenting a tech solution for what they were doing. It's a very old school classified post. It hasn't changed in 200 years. We were looking at adverts for Disneyland when we first got started from like the 1950s. And those adverts in newspapers look exactly the same as the classified post adverts they had up on JobsDB or eFinancial now. Nothing's changed. And we were thinking about how to disrupt that, how to make it more efficient. What could we learn and teach to the candidates who were applying for jobs on these various websites? And so what we did is we painstakingly built AI tools, process tools, and ways to augment that match. And another thing that we experienced, which was a trial by error, was just how important the human touch was in the process. Because a lot of the recruitment process 80% of it is offline. It's emails being sent, calls being made. And what we tried to do is pack that into an end-to-end solution that we had in our own product. So we have an applicant tracking system. Candidates get real-time feedback. We have processes that push 
more robust matches on our platform. And we do training as well, because it's very important to uh, target an addressable market that has amazing skills, but give them little nudges about how they can make those skills a little bit more universal, a little bit more transferable for the new era, the new tech. What we liked about what we do, what we still like about what we do is we actually provide a value in our ecosystem to our user base. And we try to make it fun. So candidates get rewards for getting jobs. We partner with Clue to give candidates experiences. So the idea is that finding a job should be an optimistic thing. It shouldn't be a negative thing. It shouldn't be an arduous thing. It should be fun. And we try to gamify that a little bit by creating process flows where they can get involved in the process, recommend friends, get rewards, and maybe take a look at some of the experiences they can do over weekends as well on our platform. And so that's what we've done uh, since we've launched about six months ago, we've had explosive growth, touch wood, because there are times when you're self-funded where it's a touch and go in your mind and you're always playing that game about whether you should carry on. But man, we, we had incredible reception from candidate users as well as hiring companies. And we had to change our strategy a little bit to make it more market applicable. But what I love about this tech project, projects and tech projects in general is that it's always evolving. There is no end. And as long as you're up for it and you have that willpower to keep going, to keep refining, to keep fine tuning what you do, you find yourself at a place where you can gain scale and through that, of course, revenue. But yeah, it's been fun. It's just been a trial by error a process that's been extremely rewarding for me as an individual. And I've grown a lot from having worked with a team I work with, but also by just thinking about ways to make matches. Charles, but here's the thing. You've had so much success already in the recruitment space. What were you thinking when you start this? You knew the amount of intensity and you had a successful business that was already doing very well, especially in the Hong Kong markets place. Yeah. So yeah. at the very beginning, how much did you think you'd have to invest? How much resources had you to put into this? Like in order for you to scale the way your vision was, what were you envisioning to be the outcome. Thankfully, I'm terrible at maths. And if I'd have known the maths involved in this project, I maybe wouldn't have done it to begin with. So that was an advantage I had. I, I'm thankful that I came from a social science background <laughs> and not a, not, a, not, a, not a math background. But, you know- Money was only... not an issue to your company. Yeah. That was no, why no, I was just like, no, you know, we're gonna no. do this. This no. is what we Money believe- Money is an issue for every company. And especially when you're doing a project that is high risk, money is always an issue. I think that the linchpin of what we were trying to do was just to disrupt an inefficiency. So we ran a recruitment firm that was predominantly offline, as I'd mentioned before. And a lot of those interactions from reaching out to candidates, from submitting CVs to emailing customers, to pitching businesses physically, they were just inefficient. And, and that's like a very old fashioned way of viewing this business where you're trying to maximize your own revenue by providing a service that is quite expensive for end users to use, but you're not really giving anything back to the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So what we looked at really was just thinking about ways where we can help people and companies match. Right. And in doing that, we basically kept on building and building and building because we realized that some things were offline because there weren't process flows. For example, I don't know if you ever had a headhunter reach out to you. I'm sure you've had thousands, but they have to cold call you in a very cryptic way. And in some cases they have to meet you for coffee just to tell you the name of the hiring. And it just makes absolutely no sense. So what we try to use is uh, smart database matching, filters, algorithms, 
to get you that refined candidate for that premier job, but do it in a digital way. When we first launched, people didn't believe we could do it. There was a, a headhunters play a very dominant role in the ecosystem. Talent acquisition teams within hiring companies play a very dominant role because the services out there that were tech weren't really doing anything. You'd be hit to apply and your CV was sent straight out. So what we've done is we've used statistical probability to give people the best possible analysis of where they're going to get that job. And also we learn things from the hiring companies. For example, if a hiring company has a particular nuance to look for a particular skill, we try to incorporate that in our machine learning as well. So it, it helps us get them the right match as fast as possible. That, that's really imperative because yes, we've been all been approached by headhunters, but we also find that there's a bit of a mystery. You don't really, yes. really know. It's always, you're being pitched both yes. sides. It, yes. It's very interesting. And now yes. your tool is able to solve some of those problems and make it more efficient. But yet at the same time, your scalability, which we'll talk in a little bit, is, yes. is, is much more dramatic. Most yes. hiring companies are very regional, very local, yes. only yes. work with a few firms. But now yes. you really can open up the scale of, of absolutely. what was a limiting business to be an absolutely potential. So Absolutely. You can only, the old model, you can only scale by your manpower, which made no sense. There was no other industry in this world that exists today that relies on that model. And the reason why it hasn't been done in HR is because it's so bloody lucrative for agents. They charge in some jurisdictions up to 40% commission for finding that match for candidates. And the margins are, I'm not going to lie, very attractive for a lot of companies who look to enter that market. The problem is, how do you play it again? How, how do you scale? How do you industrialize what you do? And what's your long-term growth ambitions? Is it to make revenue? Is it to scale your user base? And what are you trying to give back to your ecosystem? Because there's plenty of things out there that just want to monetize off of you. What we were thinking about doing is giving something back. And you have, and you've done just that. Like it's already, well, so I mean, but, yeah. but see, you've only been doing this for just over a year. So yes. you've already done it with such success. One of the things that you and I wanted to talk about was how to start a tech company with no money. So Absolutely. You, like you said, you've plumped a lot of money. So you've been on both sides. You've seen yes. scaling, you've done all yeah. that. Your company yeah. is valued very well and it's gaining a yeah. lot of traction in the Asian market. So what's your take on starting a tech company with no money? Enlighten us. How do you oh, do that? God. Is it possible? Uh, and come on, spill the beans. It is it's absolutely possible as long as you replace money with heart. So if you have the mental strength and the willpower to get it done, and you're very disciplined about what you're trying to do, it can overcome a lot. I'm not gonna lie, money helps dramatically. And I wish that we had funding, but through circumstances having launched during COVID and also having a product that I wanted to make sure had real market applicability, not, not necessarily what investors are looking for, arbitrary scale, but right. scale that was robust and actually made matches. The best part for us was to be self-funded. It's terrible. I'd encourage people to really think carefully about launching tech products because tech products are a bottomless pit for your commitment, for your heart, and for your willpower. And if you have a bottomless pit of willpower, you can get it done. Or if you had a bottomless pit of money, you could probably get it done too. But both things are very important for growth. So how would you go about doing, like you say, I mean, with no money, yes, you can have yeah. a lot of heart, but if I'm not a programmer, if I'm not a guy who knows, you know, a lot about this space how, yes. you know, and you had a concept, how would you go about doing this? Recruiting the right people? Absolutely. Do you, do you, like, 
walk us through how you were able to do that because it's uh, very frustrating, right? You, a lot of entrepreneurs have ideas, but they yes. don't know how to go build it out. They don't have yes. a technologist. They yes. don't have a CTO. Yes. Um, so what's the first couple of steps here? Absolutely. So I come from a management consulting background. It's what I did immediately after I graduated from school. And the benefits of that is that we really research. We really research early. And it's almost like coming up with a business plan with 10 different scenarios and being robust enough to incorporate uh, any of those scenarios into your product development. And you have to have a long-term plan. And if you're convincing to yourself, and believe me, I took six months to get convinced myself before I even went out there and canvassed people to work with, with us on this project, you really needed to think about market depth, whether you have something that is targeting an addressable market that there will be demand for your services and really map out that growth. So one of the advantages that we had was that I spent a lot of time thinking about it. We all collectively sat there and tried to identify 18 things, 20 things that we thought were inefficient about that process. And then we thought about how to apply a business logic, even before you get developers to create a tool, but to apply a, a business logic against what we're trying to disrupt. And so that, that really helped. When we were engaging in uh, trying to hire tech people, machine learning people, or even sales, you had to be convincing for yourself for them to be able to think that they want to take that journey with you and be institutionally nimble. Be prepared to think that some of the assumptions that you have made are completely wrong. There are things out there that are, you know, modeled in a certain way for a certain reason and some things that you can structurally shift and some things you can't. So you're trying to make incremental gains against your development. So the first thing we try to do is really focus on the database because the database is where the magic happens. And so even before we had the front end guys to develop the product, we started thinking about process flows for registration or thought about how it would be deployed against end users. We wanted to really think about what industries were out there. So I literally built an Excel spreadsheet with thousands and thousands of skills and thought, what is a skill between what is like an accomplishment? But you'll see on CVs that someone's written that maybe something fishing is a skill and that is clearly a skill. But if it's not applicable to your job, then it's no longer a skill. It's more like a hobby, right? Mm. Um, and that exists in private equity, that exists in trading, that exists in private in investment banking, it exists everywhere. It's really filtering those roles down to what it is really that is required to make that match. And then going out there into the market to think about how are these CVs structured? Because the real pain point that we had was that unlike the insure tech guys where they can standardize a form, CVs are non-standardized. Mm. And so to get a machine to read CVs is really a pain. It takes a long time. And that's all database work, processing tools, just to get you started. And we spent a lot of time geeking out about weightings, matches, scores, and things like that against CVs to really hammer out what we think is a fine-tuned product to get a match. Right. So that, that took a long time. So after your research phase of thinking about what we're trying to do, I probably spent another year with a team building a database. Some of it I did manually, painstakingly going through CVs, thousands of CVs, thousands of JDs thinking, what are they really talking about here? And why are these things not matching? And so the first assumption I made was that basically it's not meant to match. A JD is written as like a glossy overview of what aspirational dreams about a role. And a CV is written almost like a legal contract with dates, times, what they did exactly. One is subject to verification. 
the other, the JD isn't. So for example, if I'm Goldman Sachs and I've advertised that I have 36,000 employees on a JD, but that's a marketing gimmick. A candidate who joins Goldman Sachs and finds out they have 35,200 employees can't turn around and sue the bank and say that's misrepresentation. But on the CV side, if the candidate claimed that they'd worked for Bank of America and they turned out they'd never worked at Bank of America, that's a summary dismissal issue. They don't pass compliance. Right. So those two documents by nature don't match. So one is structured in a way that's a legal document. The other one is a glossy kind of aspirational review of the role. So what we then try to do is to extract both values from those two documents into machine readable format on our platform to boil down the gloss to being exactly what are you really looking for in this match? Right. And so that, that is painstaking. It is. And you brought up a really good point. I never saw it that way. Never thought about it at all. Exactly. Right? exactly. You, you go crazy thinking about these things. Absolutely. And that's the reason why we were like, when we were first thinking about it, we just wanted to do a little bit better than a drop board. Right. We kept on layering up different tools. And then it just became something completely different. It, it just became a product that was a standalone that had its own niche that was able to disrupt multiple different industries, as opposed to just being a nicer version of a jobs DB or something like that. Okay. So going back to the, the money aspect, right? So yes. you starting this as an entrepreneur, even though you've had other businesses and this is another vertical in a similar yes. industry, Yes. how, how yeah. would you do this? You talked about no money. Do, do you go capital raising? Do you go recruitment of the right people and work for a, a barter system, trade for shares? What would you do? Cause I mean, with resources is great, but it doesn't mean that with resources is success, but certainly yes. without resources, it's even more tough. So how would Absolutely. you start this tech company? How would you go on this tech experience if money was, was a luxury and, and not something available? How would you go about doing this? So for a lean economy in a startup, as I've mentioned, you have to be institutionally nimble. You have to make sure that your plan, your strategic growth plan is attractive enough to draw in talent that you need. And institutionally nimble also means the types of people you hire shouldn't be the best guys. There should be guys that show you commitment that can grow into being the best guys. And you have to make your commitment, the ability to grow them into the people they can be in the future. So if we go for the top shelf product, we can't compete. If I go after a guy from Google who has a machine learning experience background and we really want that guy, we fail. But if we see the next best thing and are willing to invest the time in growing that person, we've done really well. And I think that's the advantage of creating your own canvas. So I see my role really as just the guy who puts up a blank canvas, who, who frames it, who tightens it up. And we invite different people to come in and draw whatever they want on the canvas. And okay. we hope that we create an amazing picture at the end of it, but it's experimental yeah. at the end of it. So yeah. I got to stop you there because yeah. I think you've hit gold here. And I want you to elaborate on that. So you find somebody. Like, yeah. and, and you had that video and you're like, Hey, I've got this blank canvas. I want to go here. You've made this audacious goal. Right. And, and a good example of that I've always looked at is I knew planes to fly on wings. Yes. And I knew spacecrafts to fly on wings, but yes. bloody heck, Elon Musk invents a rocket that land on his butt. So to me, it defies yeah. everything I knew. And he had this audacious goal. And then most entrepreneurs have to have the same thing. That's the audacious goal you took to attract people finding the right people to come work for your firm. So how did you paint that picture? And how did you paint an audacious goal that it made sense to you and it made sense to them that they want to join you 
And then how do you compensate these people? Because at the same yeah. time, you talk about somebody who has got a huge amount of uh, artificial intelligence at Google or, or some of these big five firms. Yes. You, yes. you run that challenge because to them, they don't need to buy just the dream. They can buy yes. into a, a, a almost like a C round or a D round or somebody just yes. about to take off. So yes. how do you paint this picture? Can you sh elaborate and share with us what you've done, how you've done it to bring these people on board your company that was just really a startup, but you had mm. this audacious goal. How did you do it? Absolutely. I, I wish there was some kind of magic algorithm I could share with you or some kind of recipe that I could give you that would generate the same type of result. But honestly, there wasn't one. And I've been extremely lucky. And again, it's almost to a point where I feel emotional. I've been extremely lucky in finding a collective of people who share a common goal, who share the same dream. And it doesn't really matter whether you're building for a HR tech platform or a crypto platform or a virtual bank. If that initial group of people around you share a communal goal, you have a much better chance of achieving that. And you can go crazy thinking about how you incentivize people or how do you draw in the best talent. But ultimately, you're not looking for any of that. You're looking for people who want to share a dream with you. And you have to treat those people with extreme respect. We have a very flat organizational structure here where you can't really tell who's the boss. And I love that. And it gives people their autonomy to grow a company. On, on this round of our development, I can't give people the luxuries they deserve. They frankly all deserve Ferraris and to live in amazing mansions as far as I'm concerned. But I don't have that luxury to give that to them. What I can give them is really the ability to just do what they want around a framework where we're all trying to grow. And that's worked out really well. And if I think about it in a very kind of flowery way, you see these illustrations in caves from thousands of years ago where humans have collectivized to go hunting. And you'll see a picture of, a, I don't know, a, a tiger and a bunch of, I don't know, something they want to eat, like a mammoth or something. And that's really about pumping people up to an end goal. And that's why they drew those things. They're like, yeah, we're going to go out there and we're going to pump this goddamn thing. And we're going to bring it home and we're going to cook it. So as long as you have a charter for people to operate, that they know the end result is that they're going to bring home a catch. And that's what we're trying to do. Then it works. But if you don't have a goal, if you can't collectivize people around an idea, then your company will never work. And it doesn't matter how much money you have in the company. It doesn't matter if you've raised billions of dollars. If you're all pulling and tugging at different directions, you just not, you're not going to deploy that's a very good point, Charles. One other thing that we've really talked a lot about is revenue versus growth. Yes. I mean, you and I just sat there over cups of coffee. Yes. And we're, and we're pounding away at this thing because yes. we so far frustrated when it comes yes. to a lot of companies like yours is a startup yes. and we're looking at valuations yes. and how to evaluate and what it could be valued at. And a yeah. lot of companies right now in a seed round versus A through B, or even yes. later on is small revenue, but big audacious goal. Hey, you know how much yes. we're growing and yet their yes. valuation is like a thousand times, 2000 yes. times, infinite times, because you're not profitable in any way. Yes. So what's your yes. take on this and, and how are you working with this to mm. look at funding, to look at scalability? Because obviously as tech goes, even though once you've got the platform, it still takes a, a certain amount of deployment of capital to, to scale. Absolutely. How are you viewing this uh, element? Because of course you're in the tech space, HR tech. How are you seeing this revenue versus growth story and which one yes. really attracts you in terms of valuing companies? 
I think that's a really good point. And revenue is the derivative of having a tool that works. And fundamentally, if you think about that as you're trying to scale your business, then you can start to control your costs around your revenue growth. But there are also other models that subscribe to the theory that if you can scale, eventually you'll make money. Now, I didn't have the luxury of that. And to some degree, we had to do it the hard way. But in many ways, I don't really regret it because it meant that we made a tool that actually has something that people are willing to pay a value to, as opposed to an arbitrary value. You'll see in my industry, plenty of job boards out there that maybe don't generate a penny in revenue, but have triple the user flow that we have. And that's fine because their idea of growth is that eventually they'll make money and they're trying to target scale first. But unfortunately, the company was born in a way where we had to really target revenue. And through that, we had to make the best of that situation. So I look at it and think, at least we hit that target. Because if there's value in the market for what we've done, then it correlates with the revenue that we've generated. Absolutely. But it's painful. And honestly, I look back at a younger me with a lot more hair, quite frankly, who started (laughs) the project. Don't mention that. Yeah, yeah. And it was almost like the aspirations that we had for getting funding and getting scale versus what has turned out in reality were completely different. But it shouldn't be a showstopper for you because as I'd mentioned before, what you're really looking for is to show your commitment to your project. And if we had an investor, that's great. It's jobsapp.io. I'm also available on Crunchbase investors. But without those guys, we've been able to grow anyway. And sometimes now when we meet VCs, the way they think about scale versus revenue is slightly different to the way that we've had to grow up looking at uh, scale versus revenue. And it's quite hard to adjust to their mindset, really, where it's scale at any cost and you burn a lot of money doing that. Whereas what we were looking to do is slowly grow around our user traffic. So if there's demand for what we have done, we expand on that demand. And that's where we try to create the most value for our users in our ecosystem. But yeah, I'm not going to lie. I wish that I was able to raise like hundreds of millions of dollars, but it shouldn't be a showstopper for startups out there. For investorpreneurs, go out there and live your dream. And if the money comes from investors, that's great. But if it doesn't come from investors, have a plan to get revenue. Absolutely. I think that's a very important point. And you were at the beginning of this, you were like, hey, do I share a lot of this knowledge and wisdom? I go, you dropped so many nuggets here. Now, Charles, when you say that, we have this chat about revenue versus growth. You've seen the Googles, you've seen the Amazons, the Facebook, literally until, or even for that matter, Tesla is more recently, you really didn't see that they're really making any money until yeah. a time where they're already IPO, they're already in the public market mm-hmm. and they were spending 50% or even mm-hmm. upwards of, of 30 to 50% Absolutely. on R&D, right? Because yeah. they wanted that scale. But for yeah. you, I, I didn't mention this. And for those who are interested, of course, Crunchbase is to identify too, with you guys, you're already mm-hmm. profitable in just over yes. a year. You guys are profitable. Yes. And, and to me, I was yes. like, that was enlightening to me. I was like, yes. man, that finally somebody gets it. Right. Yeah. And, I, and to me, it's one of my philosophies is be broken even in 90 days, yeah. or maybe not. And certainly yeah. some deployment, but I don't want to keep burning money because if yes. I keep burning money right. one day, I will go broke. It's either yes. a cliff or you, you make it. And yes. I wasn't really that, that big a risk taker. Yes. So for those who are investors out there, entrepreneurs too, just like you, Charles, you are saying that people can be profitable and it's okay to be that, not just yes. look at infinite growth. You yes. know, but, but 
infinite don't know when of profitability. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I've taken meetings quite recently with people who look and say, I don't care about revenue. And I, I respect that. But I think that I think there's, there's, there's two important distinctions that you should make in your, your project, your tech project. One are businesses that can't scale at all and therefore have to make revenue. And there are other businesses that can scale, absolutely can scale with the right funding. But in the short term, you need to do what you need to do to survive, to get to that place. And I was lucky enough to be in an industry that can scale. It absolutely can scale with the right funding. But in the short term, whilst we're looking for our explosive growth that takes us to the next level, I wanted to make sure that we don't go bankrupt trying. Yes. Yeah, I think that's very important. And, and okay, you're so right because that's why you're successful. That's why you're one of those guys be like, you know what? I've done it again. And again. I can keep doing it again and again for other entrepreneurial ventures yeah. and still be successful without having those failures, without having that element where, yeah, I've ran out of funding and I'm done. Yeah. So yeah. if you were to do it again, though, Charles, yeah. knowing what you know, and, and you didn't have, you didn't have your existing company. You didn't have your brand new organization. If you were to start all over again, how would you go about what type of business would you build? Would you still do the same thing? Would you do the tech business? How would you go about it in steps? If you've got a couple of early steps, how would you do it and how would you fund it? Absolutely. So the first thing is, even during our darkest moments, I'd never regretted doing this because I feel like it's made me a better person. And that's beyond money. The people I have met, the projects that we have done, even the features that we have made, when we painstakingly draw and execute plans to get it done, I don't regret any of that. And I'd happily do it again. And to be honest with you, I probably wouldn't do anything differently. And that's not because I hit a perfect pitch. It's just that if I was an external investor, if I was an angel investor or a VC, I would never put money into a guy with just an idea, who didn't put skin in the game, who didn't show me a result. And so I feel like the most ethical way to raise money, the most honorable way to raise money is to deploy your own time your personal commitment and your life into a project. And if you can put money into it, absolutely. Show people it works and then go out to the market and raise after you had some kind of metric to show growth. And that might be old fashioned. That might just be by nature of my upbringing or by nature of the fact that I came from a management consulting background. But I really don't see that the paths that people take and raise money so quickly is good for them long-term. It's a bit like a weightlifter going out and taking steroids. And they get pumped up and they get really big, but they have to sustain that growth. And sometimes they don't know what they've done to make them grow. They're just substituting their business plan with a lot of funding. And, and again, I respect everybody in the ecosystem within tech, and there's a lot of companies like that, and, and good luck to them. But for us, if someone wants to give us a ticket of 20 million US dollars now, I know exactly how we scale. Because... I knew how we scaled when we had $0 in the company to deploy. Wow. I think that's very inspiring, man. Like, I don't know, man. Very yeah. little capital deploy. And you've been able to make this scale. How are you attracting these investors at this level? Now that you've achieved the level of profitability, how are you sharing the message to the world? What are you sharing with these people to bring your company to the next phase of development? Absolutely. And to be honest with you, I don't have a secret formula for that as well, Peter. I, I suck at doing that. I need to get better at doing that because I've been so passionate about getting this project growing. And I'm absolutely everywhere from, you know, checking the mail to being the receptionist to thinking about development tech tools to 
doing sales, I feel like my whole body is absolutely everywhere in doing this project that I'm running. But I spare very little time to invest in the process of trying to find investors. But that's absolutely something we need to do to scale in our next in our next genesis of growth. And if I were to learn anything from that interaction, it's that really you need to be able to sell people a very big vision of where you're going. Because small companies that are successful with very little funding are quite rightly very impressive. And you have that kudos from people when they look at you. They're kind of doffing their cap and saying, I don't know how you did it, that's amazing. But what you really want to be able to do is communicate the fact that you can scale. And it goes back down to what we were saying earlier. There are companies in industries that by virtue of this, the nature of their industry can't scale. And there are other industries by virtue of what they do can scale with funding. And if you're in that vertical, if you're in that track where you can scale, but you just need that little bit more kind of spark to get you moving, I think that's a positive. There you have it, guys. We talked a lot about this from a business approach. I'm going to put the final question on this, right, Charles, is family. I know this is, as some of you guys know, I'm, I'm going to get a, a, an extended new member in our family. Congratulations. That, yeah, thank you. And I'm gearing up for that. But Charles, share with me this. How did you get the support of your family, your friends, considering that you've already got a successful business? Now you're going, okay, now I'm going to pour more time, more energy. How did you get this? I don't know if balance is the right word, but how did you encompass both in terms of who you were and now going, hey, after years of having my existing company, starting a second, where did you share this with your significant other? How did you, you know, put this uh, through where, yes, you got them rowdied around you starting a new venture as well. Can you share a little mm -hmm. bit about the family element of what you had to go through to, to do this new startup? Yeah, I think this is where I think that a lot of startup founders can get easily quite emotional. Because the strain of getting a company up and running takes a toll on you. It takes a toll on your family. It takes a toll on your mental fatigue as well, because you're constantly thinking about what you're doing. You're constantly thinking of refining what you're doing, but it just consumes your life. And I've been very lucky to have really felt loved by people around me during this process, because without that support, it's much, much harder. I have a very supportive mother who's incredible, I have a father who I hadn't really met very much of in recent years, but I know is kind of distantly supportive, which has been very good. I have immediate family around me that have been very encouraging. And so that's really helped. But I would say one thing though, uh, for anybody who's looking to go into tech, manage your mental fatigue, really. Because it doesn't matter if you've had no funding like us or whether you have had a lot of funding from external sources, it takes its toll on you. And you must always wake up in the morning with a commitment to do better. You know, otherwise it just slips. And when that project slips from you, it slips, it, it feeds out to the whole team. I'm a big fan of Jerry Rawlings from Ghana. And I think one of the quotes that he had was fish rot from the head. And that's absolutely true. You must spare time for your own growth. Think about what you're trying to do and think about the message you're communicating to people around you. You can't come home being negative. You can't go to work being negative. Because there are so many things that inhibit you from doing this project that you must keep that positivity up within yourself and communicate that to people around you. Otherwise, it slips. These things are hard for a reason. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, never worked on a tech project before. But this is like an 11, really. It's really hard. If you really think about it, 
what we've tried to do with zero funding is in a space that's ultra competitive. It's swimming with headhunters. It's got LinkedIn. It's got established old players on old fashioned tech, but they don't need to change because they're making revenue or they're growing already. And you're a newbie in that market. You get squeezed by vendors. You get squeezed by third parties all the time. And what you're trying to do is find that place where you can survive, where you exist. And I'm not sure if having had, I don't know, $100 million on day one would have really helped me to find that point, really. It's really just finding that place in the market and thinking, okay, that's my linchpin. You know, that's my dunker. That's where we're going to go all in to try and find somewhere where we can grow, where we can really win market share. And I think that by doing that with with zero funding, it's really helped us really just concentrate on what we're trying to achieve. Incremental gains every day. And hopefully that, that, that accumulates into being real growth in the future. That's amazing. Charles, thank you for being on here. I very welcome. a tremendous amount. I got a lot of nuggets, man. I'm just, you got me fired up. And yeah, you should be, man. You should you know, be. No, it's, it's because of what you're telling me, man. Like yeah. how to grow and how to scale. You talk about how to do it with that passion, but with concreteness of, hey, these are the steps I need to put in place. And these are the ways that you recruit people, but at the same time, still be able to do it with a limited amount of resource. Because always I, I thought tech is going to be one of those industries like that. You go, you just sink money after piles and piles of money That's in. Yeah. And, and yet you don't achieve that level of, of profitability. So when I had a chance to sit down with you and, and we just started talking about business and family and everything else, that was that enlightenment. I go, wow, you're profitable. That, that's awesome. That's yeah. different. That's, that's fresh, yeah. right? In, yeah. in this industry. Yeah. We need to be balanced. I think profits are very important, but now we're really excited about trying to look for scale. Like we want to take the map. And that's when, you know, ask me six months of unprofitable versus scaling, man. I don't know. But right now I've enjoyed the ride in trying to crack that nugget of being a balanced platform that doesn't lose money. And in the future, I hope we can scale. I know you can. Charles, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I know listeners from all around the world would appreciate it as well. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And for those who are interested to learn more, please get in contact with Charles. He's on LinkedIn. He's also on Crunchbase. Get to know it because I think this is going to be a revolution. Even though there's a lot of established players, there's not a lot of new entries in this sphere and not a lot of innovation in this space. So I think that you've got something that's truly remarkable. And I appreciate you sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience about growing your existing firm. And now your new firm, I'm really excited for you, Charles. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Have a great day, guys.